Brothers and sisters, it is a treat to be here today. Uh, my wife and I are on our final trip uh, for the Radius school year. Uh, they graduate in four weeks, so I kind of measure my whole entire year by Radius school years, and this is the final trip, and she's able to be with me on this one. And we have really been blessed by the hospitality, uh, Dan and Susan, big part of that and just uh, your church as a whole we had a little bit of a gathering on Friday night we were very encouraged with uh, the quality of questions and just the story of your, your guys's church here uh, what has happened in the last six years I hope you don't ever take that for granted I hope the path you have walked to this point serves to spur you on not to rest on what God has been so gracious to give you, what's so gracious to create here, but it spurs you on for the next six years. And if the king tarries for another six years, and uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say something of a word of thanks for the way that you guys so kindly purchased uh, some books for the Radius student program. Uh, our students have been blessed. Many of them are going to closed access countries and they'll be gone uh, not consecutively, but cumulatively for 20 to 30 years, and to have good resources when they are in their early 20s, mid-20s, early 30s. Many of you have been blessed by reading good books, and those books have changed the trajectory of your life in some significant ways. Uh, the same is true of aspiring missionaries, and so thank you very much for that, and for sending Sean. I know that's uh, uh, something significant to send your senior pastor all the way down to Tijuana, Mexico. There are good tacos there, but he does suffer to some degree. So anyways, thank you for that. Uh, this morning, before we dive into our text, we're actually gonna look at one text before we get to Romans 15, 18 to 24. I'm gonna give you a bit of uh, Nina and my backstory so you kind of have some hooks to hang some of the stories and some of the application that we're gonna talk about of this text on uh, just because it is a, a tad bit unique. So uh, my wife and I met in a small conservative college, Christian college in San Diego, California. I got a degree in accounting, uh, eventually worked in management. Uh, it was a Dutch company, so I went back and forth to the Netherlands, <coughs> excuse me, and um, some other European countries. And by God's grace, we were members of a faithful local church and through hearing the word taught regularly on Sundays and through our personal time in the word that was our mission's calling we never saw Papua New Guinea in the stars we never heard an audible voice we never had a burning in our chest or whichever side the heart is on um, we, we never had that we never had a mission's call except from the word of God and the confirmation of our church elders and through that, we ended up walking away from uh, what we thought was going to be our next 20 to 30 year future, and we went to the country of Papua New Guinea. We got two years of training prior to learn how to learn languages that had never been written down before, to learn how to build an airfield. I was not versed in that, uh, to learn how to do solar panels. We were green before it was cool. Now it's really cool to be green. Uh, but back then it wasn't so much, but to learn all of those skills and then to learn how to translate the Bible into another language. So the two years of schooling headed over to Papua New Guinea. I had already been raised in that country as uh, from two years old to 18. 
and my wife learned the national language and I got brushed up on it. And then I'll never forget the mission leadership coming to us and handing us a list of seven people groups, seven distinct languages that had been asking for missionaries for five years or more. They don't make the list unless they've been asking for five consecutive years. And what they had seen, these people groups that were asking, they had seen other places where missionaries had arrived and they had brought these little white pills and their babies stopped dying. And they had started to bring this talk and this talk had completely changed the village. They didn't know what it was, but they saw all the benefits that came with these missionaries and they said, we want one of those. And so uh, we decided that we were going to go to a people group called the Tuwadi people. And the day that the airplane came to get us, small little Cessna 206 landed at our headquarters there. And uh, the pilot got out and he says, guys, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is it's a great flying day. The bad news is the airfield I was going to drop you off at, and we were going to hike for seven hours to get to Tuwadi, is underwater. What's your second choice? And uh, so we pulled out this piece of paper, and the second choice that we had talked through a little bit was this place called Yembi Yembi. And so I scribbled out a note on a piece of paper and just said, we're coming to your village. We heard the Yembi Yembis were a dominant, hostile people group. They had cannibalized uh, many years previously the other people groups around them to where they had shrunk them down, and they were the dominant group in the area. And we just said, we're coming to your people group. Uh, please be kind. That was the gist of the note. Uh, scribbled it out on a piece of paper, took an empty water bottle, whipped out all the water, rolled it up, stuck it into the water bottle, and we took off. Flew for about 45 minutes, got over the Yembi territory that we saw on the map. Pilot turned the plane on its side. We were about 100 feet off the, the ground, and I threw the water bottle out the window, and we saw this little kid running, and he's running to catch the water bottle. And I'm thinking, we're going to kill the first Yembi we meet. It's going <laughs> to drill this poor kid in the head, and it's going to be all over. Uh, kid wasn't fast enough. Water bottle hits the ground, and they pull the note out. We don't know if they can read it or not. It's in the national language. We keep flying. We land at a nearby airfield and we motor canoe for about seven hours. A motor canoe is a canoe about as long as this room with an outboard motor on the back of it. And we motor for seven hours and we get there. And the Yembiembis still to this day just happened to us last month as we went into Yembiembi. If they like you, they, when you arrive in the village for the first time, they take mud and they shove that mud into your face and they push it all the way down to your Adam's apple, and then they take diced up flower petals, they whip those at your face, and it sticks to the mud, and now you're beautiful. Now you're ready to come into the village. And that was our, our greeting when we got out of the canoe for the first time. And uh, we went in there, we looked around, took a bunch of video, went back out four days later, uh, sent emails to our home church, talked to our wives, talked to mission leadership, and we prayed about it. And we decided this is the place where we feel God has us going. And so we moved in among the Yembis. Uh, we started learning their language. We told them when we arrived, we're going to do four things. We're going to learn your language. We're going to learn to speak like you speak because the message we carry is too important to get wrong. Number two, we're going to teach you how to read and write in your own language. They didn't have an alphabet, so we had to learn how to uh, spell things in their language, and we had to teach them how to read and write in their own language. And then number three, there's this really important book. We're going to translate that book into your language. And then number four, we're going to teach you the meaning of that book. What that book teaches, we're going to teach you. And someday, we're going to leave. We're not here forever. We're here until we finish those four jobs. And the Embies were pretty excited about that. And they said, if you're truly going to come and live among us, we don't want you to be outsiders. 
We want you to be insiders. And what that means in YMBMB is you get adopted into clans. There's four clans, the ostrich clan, eagle clan, black cockatoos, and the toucans. They're all birds. And so they looked at me. I'm a little bit tall. Um, my nose is a little bit disjointed from basketball in college. They said, you're definitely in the ostrich clan. So they put me in the ostrich clan. Uh, my wife has blonde hair. They put her in an eagle clan. They adopted us all into clans based on our physical features. And then they started teaching us how to learn the language and culture. And we spent two years getting up to speed to where we could speak clearly. We could speak and do Q&A off the cuff. Uh, we went through some objective testing for that. And finally, in Janu January 2008, we started teaching. And we did not start in Romans. We didn't start in Matthew. We started in Genesis 1.1. By that time, we had already had believe, or excuse me, we'd already had readers. We had developed an alphabet. We taught them how to read and write, and I had translated about half of the book of Genesis, and was staying ahead by translating at night and teaching in the mornings. And so we started into the teaching. <coughs> and as we started, we discovered that the Yembis had had no institutional learning. You guys are a really good, normal American audience. You know when it's appropriate to laugh, when it's appropriate to be quiet. The Yembies had none of that. And so if the Yembies like what you're saying, any time during the teaching, even to this day, they will yell out at any point, keep talking, this talk is good to my belly. And the reason is the belly is the seat of their emotions. In America, it's our heart. My heart is broken, my heart is full, that kind of stuff. The Yembies is there, but if they don't like what you're saying, they'll yell at any time, shut your mouth, I'm about to throw this talk up, because again, throwing up is coming from your belly, and so you know really fast if you're flying or dying. So they're, they're going along in the teaching, and we're starting to walk out the implications of what is in this book. The God of this book who makes all things, and he makes them perfect the first time, and their God's. And this contrastive teaching to where here's what your ancestors have taught you. Here's what this book says. So it wasn't our word. It's what this book says. And bringing those two into intentional conflict. We had a Sunday where, or Sunday, we were teaching five days a week. We had a day where we brought in all sorts of foods. The Yembies have 12 different kinds of sago, 16 different kinds of bananas. We flew in foods from other places that they'd never seen, oranges and apples. Turned over a canoe, diced them up. We had about 1,000 people coming to the teaching so everybody could take a bite. And making the conclusion, does God eat food from what we know of this book? Does God eat food? No. Why did he create such incredible variety? Because he loves you. He loves me. Look at this God who is so good, so kind, and building up in their mind the idea of the God of the Bible, the God of the universe. Still, the most affectionate term that the Yembies have for God is creator God, the creator God who creates all good things for us. And to see this God start to become rising in their mind, this God is unlike our, our gods are so weak. They create wrong things. When they created man, their gods, they created him three times. They got him wrong. They got a crocodile, and then they got a pig, and then the third try, they got a man. This God is unlike your gods. And to bring this contrast, and then finally to get to Genesis chapter 3, which I believe is the hinge of all humanity. What happens in Genesis chapter 3 is answered in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But to see Genesis chapter 3, and again, the Yembies, uh, when we would teach, we would teach and then we would act things out. 
And as we would act things out, the Yembis liked that more because they could see it visually. And so we taught Genesis chapter two, no, 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 show it to us, show it to us. And so I had this black bedsheet and I put this bedsheet on and we're me and my coworker's wife and I'm walking around, Eve, Eve, just take the fruit. We had planted this tree in the middle. It, was really, it wasn't gonna last very long and it had some fruit that was dangling off of it. And we're walking around, we got about a thousand people coming closer and closer to where we've only got about a five foot circle to walk around. And as my coworker's wife reaches out for the fruit, someone from the crowd reaches out, grabs her hand and pulls it down. She's about to eat the fruit. I know, but the talk goes on. There's more talk to come. They're into this. They don't see fables and fairy tales. Because again, they see their ancestors. And what happens to their ancestors will trickle down to them. And my coworker's wife, second try, reaches out, grabs the fruit, and a thousand people go quiet. And we start teaching on the ramifications of the fall. Women having pain in childbirth, there's no epidurals in that part of the world. When we started... Uh, arriving there, it was about 20, 25% of the girls died in childbirth. These are real things. From dust you came to dust you will return. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat. This is reality. But the promise of Genesis chapter 3, and we took a branch from a tree right outside the teaching house. We ripped it off, and we hung it from the table that I taught from. And for the next three and a half months, this branch down to the smaller branches, down to the leaves, turned to yellow, turned to brown, turned to black, and started to drop off. The promise that when our ancestor broke out from God, that would trickle down to us today. We would feel those ramifications. But the other promise of Genesis chapter 3, that someday someone will come and will have the power to put the branch back in the tree to make things right again between God and man. That's the promise of Genesis chapter 3. That's the ray of light that comes through. And as we continue to teach, and I remember this is so crazy, the next day we teach on Cain and Abel. And one of the Yembies, and again, this is typical Yembi, he stands up in the back and he goes, wait, 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 stop the talk, stop the talk. Is he the one? I said, what do you mean? And he says, is he the one who's going to put the branch back in the tree? This guy named Cain. No, he's not the one. Okay, keep the talk going. I mean, people are raining insults down on him. What an idiot. And then he sits back down. And then they're like, that was actually a good question, but they're not going to say it publicly. Guys, every one of the Old Testament characters that we introduced, Abraham, Isaac, David, Solomon, somebody stands up or asks the question, is he the one? And this is the whole trajectory of the Old Testament. This is what the Old Testament is supposed to do. It points us to the one to come. And in, in America, there's not a lot of people that will be so bold as to ask those questions in a public teaching setting. But that is the thrust of the Old Testament. Is he the one? Well, maybe it's David. No, it's not him. Maybe it's Solomon. The nations are coming. No, Solomon falls. Maybe it's... No, no, no. And finally, we get to the book of John, and we had a countdown going of when the one was going to come. And I translated John chapter 1, and if you read John chapter 1, you go home today and you read John chapter 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus walking alongside the River Jordan, if you guys remember this. And our guys hadn't read the book of Luke. They didn't have any of that. Their first exposure was John chapter 1. And John the Baptist sees him, and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we had about seven Yemi stand up in the back, and they're yelling from the back, wait, 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 wait. Lili jono li daromo ni ma, lili do kinok ni ma, lo omo na ma du guanis. 
This one that Jono is speaking of, is he the one? Or are we waiting for another? Guys, this is a privilege of my life. Man, it, it still gets me a tad emotional. It's a privilege of my life to say, no, he's the one. He's actually, he's the reason that we left our homes. He's the reason we learned your language. He's the reason it's okay for our son to catch malaria a couple. He's the whole reason that we are here. Oh, man. And I mean, the Yembies in typical Yembi fashion, they're like, stop the talk of John who dunks in water. Who cares about him? <laughs> Tell us about this one. No, 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 no. We got to build this talk right. We got to hear it from the bottom up. And so to walk them through for the next six weeks, this one who was so different, who was actually sent by God and came down and became human and in his humanness lived the perfect life. And the Yembe's watching this guy, and there's this instinctiveness to them that if Jesus was here, Jesus wouldn't be hanging out in Port Moresby. Jesus wouldn't be at a TGC conference. Jesus, wouldn't, Jesus would be with the Yembe's. Guys, you see, there, there's a reason why the last language groups of this world are the last ones. They're the furthest ones out. They're the ones that have the hardest languages. They live in countries where the countries are opposed to the gospel. It's not a random thing. And the Yembis knew that other villages had heard this talk. And that they were at the tail end around 2008 to hear this talk. And that Jesus, if he was here, Jesus would be there. Jesus would be healing their kids. Jesus would be helping them understand what the Bible meant in these different passages and to see them fall in love with Jesus even before they knew he would die for them. What a privilege to know the king and to his heart come through even as we read the gospels. This is, this is the God that we love, the God who died in our place. And finally, on April 21st, 2008, we were able to present the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we had about 45, 50 people who understood who Christ was and that he had been the substitute. He is the substitute for them, that they are made right again with the God of heaven. That branch is put back in the tree for them through what he has done for them on the cross. And guys, through those 45 or 50, how they lived and how they died, the church continued to grow. We stayed for eight more years to see the church brought to maturity and to teach them through the New Testament to finish the translation of the scriptures. And finally, in 2016, with their own elders and deacons, we left. We came back to the United States. We still go back every year. We went back last month to check on them again. And they are your brothers and sisters. You will never meet them this side of heaven. But someday in heaven, you will meet them all, and you'll get to hear the story. And If there's mud in heaven, you'll get a little bit on your face, but that'll be for another world. If you've got your Bibles, turn over to Matthew 28. I want to set the stage for what we're going to get into in Romans 15. Most people have heard, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you've heard of the Great Commission. There are five Great Commission passages, and each one of them have a lot to unpack. But probably the clearest Great Commission passage is the one that we read. <coughs> I believe it's in our reading for today. Uh, Matthew 28, and it starts in verse 16, and it goes through the verse 20, and it ends the book of Matthew. And so I'm just going to read this and make three observations so it sets up for us what we're getting into with Romans 15, 18 through 24. And so Matthew 28, 16 is the clearest Great Commission passage, what the church is to be about, why the church exists. We do other things that signify us and that set us apart as the people of God, but there is a mission 
that we are to be about, and this is typically called the Great Commission, where we go, what we do. And so <clears throat> read this with me, and then we will make three observations. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Three observations, if you're taking notes. Number one, what we can see from this passage is that we are men and women under authority. We are men and women under authority. If you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a Christ follower, your life is no longer your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify your God. This idea that we are lone rangers, this idea that is very American today, that I follow my giftings, I follow my passions. Following your passions, for most of us, will land us in jail. We don't follow ourselves. We follow another. We have a king. We have a ruler. We have someone who has given us his passion. And our passions, our giftings, our abilities are now subservient to that one. Paul was really fond, as Sean said at the beginning, of having analogies as he would speak of the Christian life. And most commonly, he would use the analogy or he would use kind of the metaphor of the soldier. He would use soldiers and athletes, soldiers and athletes. Primarily, if you look at Paul's epistles, it's soldier and athletes, and then he'll sneak in a few farmers here and there. But mostly, it's soldiers and athletes. But why soldiers? Because soldiers, for everything that they do, they know they are under a commanding officer. Soldiers have someone who tells them, this is where you go, this is what you eat, this is how you live, this is the mission we are about. There's an opposite to soldiers. You know what it is? It's mercenaries. Mercenaries go where they want to go, get paid what they want to get paid, do what they want to do. They have no commanding officer. Brothers and sisters, most often when I find Christians, especially younger Christians, they tend to give lip service to the king and they act like mercenaries. They live as if they have no commanding officer. And yet the foundation of the Great Commission is we're men and women under authority. We live as people who have a king, who have a commander, and he has a desire. And then we see this part in here. So therefore, based off of that authority, based off of you being one who is subservient to others, go and make disciples of all nations. This idea of nations, you guys have probably heard this many times, this idea was not political nation states. This isn't Mexico and Sweden and America. Once all the nations have heard, the implication here is that we're heading beyond that. We're heading to what is known as pontitai. We're heading to the ethnicities of the world. We're heading to all of the places that have yet to hear. We're going to those locations. And one of the things that I think one of the best books I read on this, or at least an implication that came out of this, John MacArthur wrote a book called Twelve Ordinary Men. And it was about the uh, apostles. And if you look at the 13 apostles, remember we lose Judas, and then Matthias takes his place, and then we have Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. So you got 13 guys here. Of the 13, 
What, one of the implications that comes out of that book, 12 of them died in foreign lands. One of them died in his home country. The other 12, foreign lands. Where did they get this idea from? Why was there this driving implication? We keep pressing, we keep moving. Praise God that Jerusalem has a strong church. Praise God that Judea, Samaria has churches that are burgeoning and growing. But for some of us, we continue to press on to other places where the gospel has yet to go. A Christian who does not recognize the good and healthy pressure to be moving outward and onward is missing a critical component to what the original audience understood. And brothers and sisters, for some of you, that is your neighborhood. Do you know your neighbors? Do you know those who live right beside you? Some of it's it's your coworkers, and you live in an environment full of unbelievers. We don't call those people missionaries. You know what we call them? Faithful church members. Faithful church members. Missionaries are different. We're going to get to that in Romans chapter 15. But to be about what the king is about. The gospel moves outward. It doesn't stagnate in a small group. We continue to press out. And then number three, which is usually not picked up from Matthew 28, 16 through 20. The primacy of the local church. Matthew 28, 16 through 20 speaks to the primacy of the local church. Not explicitly but implicitly, it's not spelled out as many of the doctrines in Scripture. You guys will have be hard-pressed to find the doctrine of the Trinity explicated in Scripture. But by implication, we know that our God is triune. And the same is from this passage, that the primacy of the local church comes through in the Great Commission. The end goal is to see all disciples taught to observe all that Christ had commanded, and that means gathered into churches. Look at the list of activities that can only be accomplished by churches, not individuals. Churches are commanded to baptize new believers. Churches. This isn't done at summer camp when they get, oh man, we want to go. No, no, no. Churches are commanded to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We don't do that at weddings. Churches are commanded to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Churches are commanded to regularly gather. Churches are commanded to teach the word of God. Churches are commanded to raise up, disciple, confirm new elders and deacons. Through deacons, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is proclaimed to the world. How is it done? Through the church. If you take the church out of the Great Commission, you have no Great Commission. And this is lost so often in American Christendom. There's this idea that we raise up people and then they go off to the IMB or reaching and teaching. Or... No, 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 no. From the church, we see the evangelism of the nations. And so with that backdrop, press with me, turn over to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. And this is uh, most often people don't know the history of the book of Romans Paul was in prison till 63 AD, and then he's acquitted of all charges, and then he makes a trip to visit Titus on the island of Crete, and he encourages him there, then he heads to Nicopolis, he writes the book of 1 Timothy and Titus, and then he travels, some historians will say, to Spain, and some will say he made it as far as Britain on his third missionary journey. This is after he gets out of prison. But long before he does this, six years prior, he writes a letter anticipating this missionary journey. He writes a letter to a church that is closest to Spain. And he says, this is what I believe. 
This is what I practice. This is what a Christian looks like. Will you support me on that journey? In that letter, he does those four things. This is the letter that we find now and we call the book of Romans. But we don't see his appeal. Guys, will you help me on my missionary journey? Until we get to the functional end of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 16 is say hi to this person, say hi to so-and-so, encourage so-and-so. But Romans chapter 15 is kind of the end of the book of Romans. The other ones is just, hey, encourage these guys, tell so-and-so that they're doing well, walk in the Lord and in his grace. So in AD 57, he writes this letter and he asks the Roman church, will you support me? Will you help me as I go to Spain? And so I'm going to take this passage in chunks. And so we're going to read this in chunks. And so Romans 15 verses 18 and 19 says this. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So I want to touch on this passage by the power of signs and wonders first. Because sometimes that trips people up. Man, Paul was able to do miraculous things in that time period. This was quite common. We see Peter, we see John, we see miracles abounding. This time period of Acts, or the time of the early church, the time when Paul was on his three missionary journeys, is a very unique time in history. If that time period, recorded most clearly in the book of Acts, is used as a manual for how to carry out ministry or missions... Christians can get in a lot of trouble as they understand and apply what the Bible teaches. You can develop a theology of spontaneous baptism from Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, a theology of tongues based on Pentecost, or a methodology for how to choose your church leaders based on Acts 1 when the replacement for Judas, Matthias, was brought in. You can develop that based off of what you see in the book of Acts, but you will be on shaky ground because we don't see that reoccurring and we don't see it taught again. We don't even see it taught there. The Acts time period is much more helpful for describing what happened after Jesus returned to heaven and the epistles are a further in-depth teaching of Christian doctrine and practice, much more helpful for prescribing how the Christian is to live and believe in this world. There may be instances, even in this day and age, of the supernatural that the Lord may use when he deems fits. But we call those miracles. And we build our theology not on the one-offs, the occasional, the irregular, but we shape it on the regular, the tried and true, what is commonly seen in Scripture. Praise God for miracles. Praise God for the extraordinary. But we build our theology off of what we see ordinarily happening in Scripture. If you build your theology off the extraordinary, brother and sister, you're going to be in for some hard times because it, doesn't, it isn't regularly occurring in Scripture. I'm comforted that the vast majority of Christian history has been based and rooted on the ordinary means of grace. Three primary ordinary means of grace. Prayer, the teaching of God's word, and the testimony of the saints. Primarily the testimony of the saints is through the church. Your church's reputation 
What your church is known for will be what most of the community sees and responds to. Prayer, teaching of the word, testimony of the saints. My comfort comes because the ordinary means are readily available to us today. And while they carry the name ordinary, they are nonetheless immensely powerful when put into practice. So let's make sure that we keep our categories for ordinary and extraordinary in the right boxes. And praise God for both. But build your theology off of what scripture prescribes, not what it describes in general nature. But then there's this second part of Acts 19 where it says, From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, Paul has fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. This is sometimes people don't grasp the weight of this statement. It's as if somebody stood up in your guys' pulpit today and from and says, from Orlando, Florida to San Diego, California, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. That's an extraordinary statement. All the way across this vast area, Paul says, preached all over that place. Paul is saying this is a reached area. And then he doubles down. He doesn't just stop there. He actually presses further. But to understand that pressing, okay, stick with me on this. This one's a little bit tough. So in scripture, today, when we make an argument, typically the punchline, the end of it, oh, here's the main point. The end, the main point comes at the end. And that's why you don't eat McDonald's before you run a marathon. And he never said another comment about her weight again. Like it's just the punch is right at the end. In scripture, when Paul's making an argument, there's this thing called a chiastic, some guys will call it a chiastic pattern. The main point comes in the middle. So they're going to give the main point, the main punch of the whole argument, right in the middle. So for our ears today, we're going to skip verses 21 through 22. We're going to come back to it and put it at its end like we normally do today. And we're going to jump ahead to 23 and 24. So remember, Paul says, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, Fully proclaim the gospel of Christ. Now listen to verse 23. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed to come for you to uh, come, since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I've enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul's saying there's no more work to do in these regions. Not only has the gospel already been there, there's no more work to do. This is a shocking statement. This is Paul. This isn't some guy on the fringes. This is the Apostle Paul, and he's saying there's nothing left to do. Most theologians, most church historians will say from Jerusalem to Illyricum, less than 2% of the population even exposed to the gospel. Not got saved, that were even exposed. And Paul says, nothing more to do. How can he say that? You know how he says it, brothers and sisters? Because Paul saw a church. Paul saw the church as the finish line for missions. There's an outpost of light in Jerusalem. There's an outpost of light in Galatia. There's a little bastion of heaven in Corinth and in Ephesus. And in each one of these cities, if there was a healthy mature, gospel-preaching church, Paul, the pioneer missionary, let's not conflate him with Timothy, Paul, the pioneer missionary, would say, I press on. I keep moving. 
I go to places where there is no church. That doesn't negate us from being gospel witnesses in our community. I praise God for the gospel witnesses. I don't call San Diego, California an unreached location, an unreached language group, an unreached people. I don't call it unreached in any way, shape, or form. You know why? Because the Rock Church is there. Because Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church is there. Because the Hills Church is there. Because Shadow Mountain Community Church is there. And by God's grace, there are hundreds and thousands of gospel ministers, gospel proclaimers in that area. We don't call them missionaries. You know what we call them? Faithful church members. Faithful church members. If there are members of a church, it's their job to evangelize their local communities. It's their job to press out to their family members, to their co-workers, to the people that they buy groceries from. I hope you're intentional about where you get your food from. Do you go to the same restaurant, not because you like the menu so much, but you're building a relationship with that waitress. You're building a relationship with that business owner. We're leveraging every dollar we have, every encounter we have. There's an intentionality. I'm getting to know my son's basketball coach, not because I want him to start, but because I want him to come to church. I'm using all of these things. I'm drawing everyone I can. And some of us have a greater capacity for that, and some of us have a lesser capacity. That's okay. God built us all differently. But are we using the encounters? Are we using all of the ways that God brings unbelievers, those who do not know who Christ is? Are we using those things to draw people in? Are we using our networks? And lest we think that Paul didn't care about existing churches, remember that Paul established many churches, and as he's getting ready to die in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he's positioning his disciples, Timothy, Go to Ephesus. Something had gone on in Ephesus. We don't know what it was. Go to Ephesus and go strengthen that church. Titus, go to Crete. They haven't named elders there yet. Go to Crete and strengthen that church. And as he's moving disciples around. But for Paul, the pioneer missionary, Paul kept moving on. He kept pressing on. Where do I go where there's no foundation laid? And then we have this wonderful passage at the end of 24. It says this, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. He's asking them to support him. Romans, Roman church, would you get behind me? Would you help me? You're my last stop, the last little ship port before he heads off to Spain, would you get behind me? So there's this wonderful two-part equation to the Great Commission. And I, I believe what John Piper, if you've read any John Piper books on missions, John Piper generally splits the Great Commission task based on this passage in Romans chapter 10, 13 through 15, into goers and senders. Pauls who go and Roman church members who send. And usually, in our day and age, it's a vast majority of senders, and there's a handful that are equipped, that are able to go and to be the goers. 
this two-part equation of goers and senders. And so much time is spent on speaking to the goers. And the vast majority of you will never be those who are Pauline, pioneer, let's go someplace where the gospel has never gone before. You're going to be faithful senders. John Piper likes to say you're either a goer, you're a sender, or you're a disobeyer. There is no fourth category. You're one of the two or the three. And so I'm going to just take a parenthesis here and talk about senders for just a second. Senders is the vast majority of you in this room. If you don't know what you are, you're a sender. What do good senders look like? What is a church, what is Sixth Avenue Community Church is it raises up goers and that will be 5, 10, 15, maybe who knows what God has for you over the next 20 years if the king doesn't return. But what about the other hundred of you? What does a good sender look like? Well, let me give you three, the marks of a good sender. Number one, a good sender raises their sons and daughters to be goers. Good senders raise their sons and daughters to be goers. One of my heroes in missions is a man by the name of John Payton. I love John Piper, but he has discipled us poorly in pronouncing Payton's name. It's not Patton, it's Payton. Payton is a Scotsman, and the Scots rebuked me when I gave a talk one time about John Patton. Patton's the general, Payton's the missionary. So it's Payton. John Payton, autobiography of John Payton, second best missionary biography ever. If you've never read the autobiography of John Payton or the letters of Margaret Payton, wonderful, sweet understanding of what it took to take the gospel to the island of the New Hebrides, now called Vanuatu. But John Payton returned home to Scotland in the middle of his missionary term and there was a very popular hymn that people were singing. And this hymn, in the middle of it, the chorus went something like, Send our sons and daughters glorious to the nations abroad. And Peyton got up and he said, Everybody likes to sing that hymn as long as we're talking about somebody else's sons and daughters. Don't talk about my sons and daughters. Talk about yours. Friends, do you put your kids to bed with the stories of Amy Carmichael, of John and Betty Stamm, of Adoniram Judson? Do you raise them as temporary stewardships? Yes, they follow Christ. Do they aspire to live for something greater? Do they aspire to be more than good Christian kids? Because here's the honest truth. Good Christian kids are a dime a dozen. Are we raising soldiers? Are we raising men and women who, if someday they say, Mommy and Daddy, I want to go to China. That's what I think the Lord has laid on my heart. I want to go to China. I want to take the gospel there. With tears in your eyes. This is no easy thing. I say this as one who has a son who just graduated from college and is thinking about missions. It's every fiber of my being not to tell him, keep going towards accounting. Keep heading towards that direction. And if you have to take them to the airport in Huntsville, if you have to take them to Chicago and you're saying goodbye for four to five years with tears in your eyes, we're proud of you. We're proud of you. This is no surprise. We raised you like this. Do we raise sons and daughters who aspire to be goers? Number two, the marks of a good sender. Do we live in such a way that the Great Commission affects our life here? Do we live in such a way that the Great Commission affects our life in Decatur, Alabama, or in Huntsville, Alabama, or wherever you're from? Does it affect your life? 
William Carey, when he was getting ready to go to India, he's a famous missionary. He's called the father of modern missions. Uh, the story of William Carey's incredible. Um, he was a linguist of linguists. He translates the Bible into six different languages. But as he's getting ready to go, him and another luminary in the Christian world, Andrew Fuller and a handful of other brothers gather around and they described what they were going to do. First time ever. He's getting ready to go on the ship to head to India. Nine months crossing the ocean to get there. And they said, we feel like we are sending you down a well. And we'll be at the top you're heading down, and you're going to go down this deep, dark well. He said, brothers, I'll go down the well as long as you'll hold the rope. Will you hold the rope at the top? And I believe someday when the king returns, and the king is returning, he could be coming today. Maybe it'll be next week. Maybe it'll be next month. But someday when the king returns, he's going to ask everyone and some from 6th Avenue Community Church that went down the well, show me your hands. Those are the goers. Show me your hands. Show me what it costs you to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But I think when the king returns, he's going to ask everybody at the top of the well, show me your hands. Don't show me 6th Avenue Community Church's hand. Don't show me your Sunday school class. Show me your hands. Did it cost you anything? As you have young people that aspire to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, that are raised up within your church, do they know, hey, this church will be behind me? Do we drive older cars? Do we live in smaller houses? Do we have skinnier 401ks for the sake of the gospel? Or does the Great Commission not affect the way that we live? In nuts and bolts, practical ways. What will your hands have? Will they have the scars when the king returns? And then finally, good senders are faithful church members. Good senders are faithful church members. When we left for Papua New Guinea in 2003, I remember Marv and Shirley Friedman. They always used to sit in the second pew at Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church. And they were the ones who came up. There's this thing that Baptists do this more often than Presbyterians. But we come up and we lay hands on someone. And it feels great when you've got about four sets of hands. When you've got about 48 and you're just like shrinking under it. But Marvin Shirley came up. They laid hands on us. And every Sunday as we were getting ready to go and all through our college years as we were faithful members at Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church, Marvin Shirley always sat there. You know what brought tears to my eyes when I came back after 13 years? There were Marvin Shirley. Same pew, same place. They lived for two more years when we got back, and then we buried Shirley, and then a few months later we buried Marv. They went to see the king. They were faithful. And the comfort it was that when we came back, they would still be there. The school that I teach at is called Radius International, and we raise and we train them that they have to see a church planted. Seeing a church planted is the finish line of what they are setting out to do. Brothers and sisters, we instill that DNA, that fiber into them. But the question for most sending churches and for the senders is, will they still be there when they get back? Will they still be here or will it be Biden? Will it be Trump? Will it be masks? Will it be vaccine? Will it be whatever issue pops up? Well, we sing kind of weird. So we have really long services. Are you faithful? Are you faithful? Will you be here when the goers return? Or is it only the goers who are called to faithfulness? And the senders, well, they sing better. The youth program over there. 
Are you faithful? When the king returns, will he find? And one of the marks, one of the scars, man, I'm a faithful church member as we continue to see this teaching house stretched. As we continue to have young pastors and teachers and as they grow and they make the occasional mistake. If the word stops being taught from this pulpit, you should go to another church. But if the word is taught faithfully from this pulpit, will you be a faithful church member? The marks of a good sender, above all others, will they be faithful to what they know to be true? We are members of a body. We come to an embassy of light on Sundays. We gather together. We know each other intimately. We are above and all, first and foremost, the people of God. And every other identity trickles down from that. And so we arrive at the main point of what Paul said in verse 15, or excuse me, chapter 15, verses 20 and 21. And Paul says this, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul's driving ambition, Paul's heartbeat was, I press on. Brothers and sisters, that will take many forms as senders primarily here, but a handful that you raise up and maybe your sons and daughters in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Represent Sixth Avenue Community Church and you take the gospel somewhere in India where it's never gone before. We pray for the country of India. Maybe in the pews being raised in your homes is the answer to those prayers. We press on. We're faithful in our local communities, but we press on. When we were, and I'll close with this, when we were in Yembe Yembe, uh, two weeks after we presented the gospel, we had the Yembe's, so they would wake us up at night. Our houses were on these huge posts, and there was three rows of posts, and it was about eight feet off the ground, and so if they needed me, they'd helped build our house with us. It had a plywood floor, and then it had bark walls, and so they knew exactly where our Uh, kitchen was they knew where our bathroom was they knew where my uh, bedroom was and so they had this long pole and they would go under the house and they would hit it at the bottom of the floor and you'd be asleep at like two o'clock in the morning and wah wah and I mean you thought Christ would have returned like it was so (laughs) loud and your head would bounce off the floor and then uh, sure enough two weeks after we present the gospel the Yembe's I'm laying there at night sleeping and wah 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 go to the window yell out there who is it and it's typical Yembe response, it's me, it's me. <laughs> I know it's you. What's your name? It's me, your tribal father. Oh, this is a big deal. This is one of the chiefs of the tribe. And so get outside, grab my flashlight. And in Yembe, Yembe, it's rude to shine your flashlight on people's faces. It ruins their night vision. And so you shine it on their feet. And they can recognize all thousand of themselves by their feet. They can track everyone through. Of course, they can recognize my feet, but they're, I'm looking at their feet. I have no idea who, who's there. And there's seven people. So I'm working my way up the kneecaps and recognize those shorts and that belly button and finally figure out we've got seven people here who we believe understood who Christ is and have been saved from their sins by God's grace. And so we got seven believers. And I said, Brothers, what, what, what can I do for you? Did something happen? Did somebody get bit by a snake? Somebody getting hit with a bad case of malaria? No, 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 it's none of that. We want to know when we're going. And I said, what do you mean? Well, if the talk is true, if the book is true, 
then our sister village, Changriman, who's an eight-hour hike away, our sister village, Changriman, is going to the place of fire, right? They're going to hell. So when are we going? Will it be tomorrow or will it be the next day? When are we going to our sister village, Changriman, so they don't go to the place of fire? Two weeks old in the faith. When are we going? Guys, my wife and I came back from New Guinea in 2016, and since that time, I've had a really wealthy church in California and a wealthy businessman offer to fly the Yembiembi elders and their wives back to the United States for a missions conference to get up and to speak, and I'm going to translate. And there's no way in the world I would do that for two reasons. Number one, it would blow their minds. To get on an airliner would just be too much. It would be like you and I going to Jupiter. Like, it's just... it's out of their realm of understanding. But the second reason, and I told the wealthy businessman this, I said, brother, you don't know what you're asking. You think this would be a good thing. This would be a bad thing. Because remember, the Yembis are the ones who still to this day, when the pastor gets up, and if he starts saying something, and this has happened, where it's not completely in alignment with scripture, the ladies in the church will start yelling from the back, the canoe's turning, the canoe's turning. I mean, just, and this guy's dying up front. The Yembis would probably get up and they would say some version of, how long have you had this book? When are you going? When are you going? Brothers and sisters, there's a good and right pressure that we should always feel. We press on. We press out to further edges of our own communities, but we keep having in the back of our mind, when are we going to send someone from our body to places where no foundation has been laid. We press on because we are the people of God. Let me pray. Father, we praise you for your grace to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We praise you for your kindness to us that someone in our history understood the gospel in our language and through faithful members of churches we have heard the gospel taught to us clearly in our own language. We have your words in our language. We are privileged above so many people throughout history. Father, we thank you for this grace that you have given us. We thank you for the kindness that you have bestowed on us and our families. Father, may we not rest on that grace. May we not be men and women who are unthankful But Lord, from that thankfulness, from that joy, may we be spurred on that others may experience that joy to be made right with you again by the blood of your son. What a privilege. Father, save many. Save many through this church. Save many through the relationships that these church members have. And Lord, raise up within them an army of sons and daughters of fellow church members that will press to the ends of the earth where no foundation has been laid. You have been pleased throughout history to use small things to create mighty results and glory for your name. Be honored in this church in these ways we pray. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.